This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Manual for the Modern Mystic, How to Practice Being in the Presence of God. And the author is Rio Oleski, and Rio joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Rio. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great. I want to read a couple of things that you've written about your book. You say... A manual for the modern mystic defines 12 concepts that you call universal laws. They, in turn, each are based on one of the signs of the zodiac, and that you delineate each of the laws using personal stories and antidotes, as well as references to thoughts of people who are recognized as authorities in the field of theology, philosophy, spirituality, and metaphysics. Well, this is a compendium it sounds like <laughs> well it it kind of is um in fact when i was asked I, one of my students asked me if she could edit my book she is a professional editor herself and she came back because i am a professional astrologer and that's how she knows me and she came back from reading the book and she said well it's really fine but it needs more astrology and i said well it's not an astrology book it's a metaphysics book and she said well oh okay i get that but the other problem is it's like a tome. And I go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us your background, Rio. Well, I um, have two college degrees, uh, which I received many years ago. I've essentially been a professional astrologer for the last 40 years. Um, and I have taught classes during that period. I have, uh, this is the second book I've written. And, uh, but my primary focus in life has on a personal level, and I bring this into both my readings classes and certainly this book, is spiritual growth and consciousness development. And you say that astrology is a language through which to develop an understanding of the nature of life. Mm -hmm. Comment on that. Well, one way that we work with astrology or define astrology is the way in which we correlate planetary movements and cycles to human experience and behavior. So um, when we are looking at life from the broadest possible perspective, taking everything that we can perceive, everything that we can feel, uh, everything that we can think about, or ways of understanding what reality actually is, and then we, we see how that's reflected by the planetary movements. Now, one of the ways that we work with astrology is essentially through archetypes. So in other words, each of the signs of the zodiac, each of the planets of the solar system would represent a, an archetype, and we would associate that archetype or each of those archetypes with a series of key words. So as we understand the archetypes, as we understand the key words, and then apply them to our experience, understanding, perception, etc. of reality, then we start seeing the correlation between the two and ultimately realize that one of the great benefits of astrology is that it really teaches us beyond a shadow of a doubt that life is oneness, that there is no separation uh, between any phenomena at all. Everything is simply a different vibration that comes from the same source. So this will enable a person to see who he is and what is his place, and as you call it, the universal scheme of things? Well, actually, that is what a person would be able to benefit from if they had an astrological reading or studied their own horoscope. What the manual for the modern mystic can actually help them do is work on the process of consciousness expansion, work on the relationship between themselves and source or divine spirit or whatever they want to call that concept. And what is, I think, unique about my book is that it provides information that is fairly 
theoretical and conceptual, but it brings it into the reader's mind in a very practical, concrete way. Um, I am actually a fairly skeptical person. I'm a very grounded person in my own life, fairly conservative in a lot of ways. And um, so what I've tried to do is bring my personal experience of being fairly practical and down-to-earth into a realm that is much more expansive in a philosophical uh, way so that, again, what the reader can benefit from in a manual from the modern mystic is learning how to work with the archetypes of the signs and ultimately um, understand them in a broader, more metaphysical sense and yet be able to integrate them and work with them in very grounded, very practical, everyday kinds of ways. At one time, you were a skeptic. Oh, extremely. In fact, I, I haven't lost the skepticism yet. I've, in my metaphysical, spiritual studies of over 40 years, if I read something new that I haven't heard before or read a new author, my first experience is to doubt it. And, well, gee, I don't know. Can I, can I verify that in my own experience, or can I at least verify it intuitively if I haven't had a firsthand experience? Does this feel right to me? Does this fit in with my understanding of myself or uh, of the nature of life? And if it does, okay, fine, then I'll accept it. And if not, I won't necessarily reject it out of hand, but I will just kind of put it in abeyance and say, well, okay, I will, I will contemplate it, I will put it on the shelf, Every once in a while, I'm going to look at it, see if my experience in life has changed, and I can be more accepting of this particular thought. And there's many things that, that are part of the, I guess we could call, new age lexicon that I don't really buy into at all. It just seems doesn't, it doesn't work to me. Um, and other things that are absolutely correct, and uh, which I fully embrace both personally and professionally. You call the modern mystic the contemporary spiritual seeker who is always looking for ways to enhance and expand his or her consciousness. Now, that concept, help us to understand this expansion of consciousness. Well, that's a really good question, simply because um, that really brings the whole issue of consciousness into the conversation. What is consciousness? And I think a really good way of defining that is, is what we are aware of. Uh, personally, I feel that, that the human potential is for limitless consciousness. Uh, if anyone has ever read any description of a person who is in the enlightened state, you realize that, that a person in that, in that state has no boundaries in terms of what they are able to perceive, in terms of um, the macro scale of the nature of the universe, which supposedly is pure light, down to an individual person having a thought or a conversation with someone else anywhere in the world. And all of that is potentially available to the human mind. We know that because there have been many, many, many men and women throughout history who have attained that state. So that ultimately for approximately the last 45 years of my life, has been my primary goal, is to continually expand my consciousness until eventually I have reached the enlightened state. I certainly make no claims to be enlightened at this point, but uh, so that I can really only offer my book as a, as a guidepost um, that would reveal my understanding and the growth of my consciousness up to the point I wrote the book. So your book offers the seeker literally tools to help to reach this point in their consciousness. Yes. Well, you and talk these are all tools I've used myself, so I know that they can work. Hopefully providing a broad enough palette of tools or box of tools so that the, at least one or two will appeal to every reader as, as a technique that they can utilize to enhance or integrate that particular law more into their life, and a result, as a result of that integration, expand the consciousness. In fact, one of the things that's kind of humorous on my end is the fact that it took me 10 years to write this book, not that I was writing all day every day. There was a few years I didn't write at all for various reasons. But every time I'd go back to the book after I hadn't written for a while, 
I would realize, oh, I forgot so much information, not that I had forgotten it when I first wrote the book, but that I had learned so much more in the ensuing years since I wrote that particular chapter, I was able to write a lot more. So I guess, you know, you could say the bad news is if I waited another 10 years, it would have been a much better book. Well, let's talk about a a couple of the laws, these 12 laws, universal laws, as you put it, and we're talking about the law of creativity, the law of survival, the law of both and. How do you say that? What would you, how would you the say that? The law of both and, that's it. That's it. Well, tell yep. us about this law. This is something new to me. Well, one of the, one of the um, points that, the spirit, that spiritual teachers talk about over and over again is the oneness of life. And one of the things that traps us into the illusion that life is anything but oneness is duality. We tend to think of something and its opposite. We think of male and female, day and night, light and dark, good and bad. And if, in fact, life is pure oneness, then the the duality itself is an illusion. Well, how can we convey, what is a way, a concept that we can convey the idea that duality is an illusion and that oneness is the reality? Well, we can certainly talk about a law that speaks about the oneness in terms of both and instead of either or. The either or, of course, reflecting more of the duality. The law of the eternal present, the law of love, the law of service. Talk about that. Two ways that spiritual masters consistently have talked about consciousness development is through, number one, first and foremost, meditation. And second of all, this service. Um, in the process of, of spiritual growth or consciousness development, one of the challenges that we face is overcoming the limitations of the ego. The ego is that part of ourselves which constantly reminds us that we are who we are, that we're individuated, that we're different from other people, our life experience is different, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one way of, of transcending or getting beyond that ego identification or ego attachment is to put oneself in a more humble state of, of accommodation of others, um, whether that's in a healing modality or whether that's simply in the, the casual flow of life in which we realize we can benefit other people in some way by being of service to them. Now, of course, there's also a very big difference between service and self-sacrifice. Sometimes when, we, when we're our intention, very good intention, to be of service to others can actually turn around and cause us suffering or great harm because we, we wind up sacrificing ourselves in, in, the, uh, in the interest of supporting others. So we don't have to go that far, but certainly being available to, open to, aware of other people's needs, and also realistically aware of ways in which the, we can support other people or help other people on their path in their process without putting ourselves in jeopardy. Then there's the law of harmony, the law of eternal life, the law of abundance. Now that's something I think everyone would want. Well, one of the things that I find in um, giving readings to, to clients is uh, people come in and I always, first thing I do in a session is ask, well, do you have any questions, any specific areas of interest that you'd like me to address? Normally, people will ask me what I call the big three, work, health, and relationship. And eventually, work always boils down to money. A lot of people who are dealing with financial difficulties, and I'm not talking specifically just about right now in terms of the recession and the economic meltdown that we are experiencing globally. I'm talking about individuals who've just had a hard time with... um, with prosperity throughout their lives. And I find that a lot of those people really do a lot of affirming of what I call the universal law of scarcity. The universal law of scarcity, of course, being defined as, since there isn't enough to go around, I'm probably not going to get enough of what I need. Now, that's all great and groovy, but there is no universal law of scarcity. The law is abundance. So here again, when we are ego-identified, And what we tell us about ourselves is, gee, I'm not enough of this or good enough at that, and therefore I won't get my needs met. We're not really tuning into reality. 
the reality is that the universe is based on abundance. There's plenty of everything for everybody. And if we can simply open up, again, one of the benefits of being of service to others is that we can open up and not only feel the support in serving or providing service for others, but ways in which we, too, are being supported by the universe, whether it's in the form of someone else seeking to serve us or whether it's an incredible opportunity that is staring us right in the face that will help us to experience abundant love, abundant health, abundant um, financial security, whatever it is we're looking for. So that, when we start tapping into the concept of abundance, now we're really expanding the consciousness and getting beyond a lot of the fear-based programming that so many people have experienced in, in childhood at this time and, and I think uh, really around the world. And then the last three laws, the law of karma, the law of impermanence, and the law of transcendence. And finally, the chapter that wraps it up, chapter 13, all these laws bless us because the universe wants us to be happy. Yep. That sounds like the ultimate benefit. Yep. Well, it is. If we, if we accept the fundamental assumption that life is oneness and that everything that exists, whether it's human or mineral or plant or whatever it is, is all a manifestation of the same life force or source, wouldn't it make sense that that unified energy force field would want to exist in a, at least in a positive state, rather than in one of fear, which can lead to anger, which can lead to control, which obviously can lead to divisive behaviors among people. Um, so, so one of the things that I talk to my students about a lot is the fact that we all have a lot more in common than we have differences. The media in the world, and certainly in our country, likes to uh, pound the drum of differences, how people dress different, eat different, uh, call God by a different name, and therefore we have to vilify those people. They're different from us, can't possibly be as good or as important. And, you know, in fact, that's just continuing the duality. It's continuing ego identification. It's continuing to perpetuate the misery that is afflicting so many people, so many life forms around the world. And, again, what I've, what I've done or have attempted to do in writing this book is, is to inspire people to start seeing life differently, seeing themselves differently, understanding a lot more about the human potential, and to start prioritizing the whole process of personal growth and consciousness development as a way of essentially making the world a, a better place to be. The title of the book, A Manual for the Modern Mystic, How to Practice Being in the Presence of God, and the author is Rio Oletsky. Rio, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can um, order it through iUniverse. You can order it through Amazon.com. And you can also order it through me, through uh, my business, which is Holistic Astrology. Um, and you, my website is uh, StarWatcher.com. Uh, and you can also, um, if you prefer, so you can email me for that or speak to me in person. And the number here at the office is 707-887-1820. Thanks for being with us, Rio. You're welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb. 
with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Growing Up the Greek Way in the Big Apple. And the author is Mike Pappas. And Mike joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Mike. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Well, good to have you with us. This is what you call your autobiography, your memoir, a combination. Uh, You're going to take us back growing up the Greek way in the Big Apple. So I want to read what you've written about that. You say, Growing up in New York City and being a first-generation Greek immigrant was an adventure in itself. It was a time everybody remembered and treasured. Our parents followed many old-fashioned traditions, so we did things that sometimes were not entirely within their standards. I share many facts, events, and memories, some sad, some crazy, some bizarre, and some even fun. Most anyone can relate to some of these memorable experiences. With all the things that I learned while growing up, nobody but nobody can take your memories. Well, take us back, Mike, and I guess first of all, what's the motivation to do this? Uh, This is a big uh, enterprise to publish a book. Yeah, well, it all started uh, when I retired back in 2005. I wrote my first book on my experiences in the food business. After I completed the book, my youngest son said, Dad, how come you didn't mention more about your personal life in there? So I told him, well, maybe I'll write another book. And he encouraged me to do that, and uh, I did just that. I, uh, I sat down and just decided to uh, put all my memories together and put it into a book form. So he really encouraged me to do this. So that's what got me going on this. And you, and you lived in New York City at a time, as you put it, you were very fortunate to live in an apartment building that you had your own bathroom. A lot of people yes. had to share a bathroom. Many people had to use, uh, you know, a bathroom with other families. Yeah, the bathroom down the hall, huh? Right, and the bed tops were in the uh, in the kitchen. <laughs> That's so was, we were very fortunate. Yes. That's difficult for most people today to relate to anything like that. Yes, today people need two or three bathrooms, much less one. <laughs> so the book starts out when you're how old? Approximately five years old. I go back as far as five years old. I have memories of that far back. And I see at the beginning I was reading about a trip on a subway. You were going to go see your aunt and uncle, and all of a sudden you got off, and you didn't know where you were. Yes, I thought I knew my way, and all of a sudden everything looked strange. I was so sure I knew my way, but I guess uh, until you experience it, you realize you don't know it all. And, of course, uh, that's another thing. Uh, back then, you could do things like that. Uh, it was yes. a much simpler time. Of, you, most people uh, didn't have fear uh, like today. No, definitely not. It was a time that people just leave your doors open and worry about uh, what's going to happen next door or anything. Well, you talk about your, in your book a theme about how things do not change. What, tell us about that. Well, when you go back to the, to the old times, how politics were the same thing. They do things, make mistakes, and just do over again. So we basically don't learn. They'll just do the same thing over again. They'll spend more money than they have, and today it's no different. They do the same thing. So times have changed, but they still go relate back to the old-fashioned way of doing things, making mistakes and still doing it over and over again. 
And, of course, very important faith, uh, religion in your life. Is that a very important part of you growing up? Oh, it definitely was. Uh, my parents, especially my mother, was very uh, very religious, and she uh, guided us in the direction that we all went. And I felt that, you know, deep down in my heart, it kept us close as a family. And, of course, family values really meant a lot. They, that was the uh, basis for everything. It definitely was. I feel that... That's our problem today. In today's times, the family values are, are not there. Everyone takes things for granted. They do things on their own. They don't look at each other. The love is not there anymore. It's, it's a different world. So how did you learn family values? Well, you know, we lost our, our father when we were all young. And we got to realize that if you have to survive in this world, you have to, you have to really basically uh, look for faith. And I found out by having support from your from your you know, your sisters and your brothers, it gave me a lot more support. It gave me more love towards my fellow man, you know. So this is what made it uh, more rewarding. And of course, uh, a single parent—that's a tough thing, no matter what the age. Yes, it definitely was. You know, uh, in those days, you're you know, uh, it was a lot different. Even though you didn't make as much money today, in those days, you could get along making a few dollars and make ends meet. But when you lose your uh, source of income, uh, it makes things even more difficult, you know? So thinking positive was a real basic key. Yes, always thinking positive. As bad things were, you had to think ahead. I mean, I had some bitter moments growing up, but you learn to live that that's how life is. You make the most of it. As bad as things could be, it could be a lot worse, so you look at it in a positive direction. And was your mother a real positive thinker? Oh, yes. Well, my mother was a warrior. That's her problem. She worried about every little thing, but she gave us a lot of love and hope, and uh, that's what kept us going. She always never gave up. And, of course, you were taught to respect others, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Respect your elders, definitely. Uh, yes, that's something we always did. We did to take granted. We uh, took uh, life serious. And we did our things. We had our, you know, we had our moments. You know, being a just typical young boy, you always wanted to, you know, experience new things and, you know, experience, even if, even if it was wrong, you know, you, you had to do it once. You know, you get yourself burnt and then you learn, well, you know what, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And I'm sure your mother was an example of always helping others. Yes, she was one that never said no. No was not in her, in her vocabulary. And I guess I took that to her too because I'm the same way. I... I love helping. I love, you know, uh, being helpful with others. And I can show it all to my mother because she gave us that up spirit in life. And, and those kinds of family values and uh, neighborly values are, are so critical. Yes. So what is something you remember growing up that really taught you a, a great lesson of life? Well, if you want something in life, you better earn it. Don't try and gamble it. Don't try and steal something because it doesn't work that way. If you want something in life, go to work, earn it. I even went to work when I was young just to get a few dollars, a few pennies in my pocket. So if you want something in life, you earn it. That's how I look at it. So you don't let anything stand in your way? No. You just put your mind to it and you do it. That's why we live in a country today. You can do anything you want. You can be whatever you want today. Nothing can hold you back. And you were taught to admit when you were wrong. Yes. If you made a mistake, be man and admit it. Yes, I learned that from my mother also. I got caught many times doing something I should be doing, and, you know, I try to get out of it. I realize that lying about it want to get you deeper in trouble. So if you admit it, take your punch to the front and then go, go on from there. Talk about friendship. Talk about some of your friends that you remember. Yes, matter of fact, uh, I had a couple of friends that uh, we grew up with very close. We were like, just like brothers. Uh, we had friends that, uh, people that we met that came from Greece. We grew up uh, and lived just like brothers. We did everything together except, you know, sleep in the same house. But, you know, we took, we always helped each other out. It was, it was a problem. We always came to each other's aid, you know. And uh, I found that to be very rewarding. Because friends are hard to find today, a good friend anyway. Everyone's a friend, but when you need a friend, I always say a friend never says no, or maybe. He just does it. 
And you never say maybe to your parents. No, definitely not. <laughs> you know, you, you have to, you know, even though sometimes you don't agree with their ideas, you do what they say and uh, take it from there. Was your father strict? He was strict, but yet he was fair. You know, unfortunately, he died when we were all young, so I didn't have a chance to really get to know him as well as I wanted to get him to know him. But he was a... He taught me a lot of good things, and punctuality was definitely one of them. He told me never be, never be late, always be on time. And that rubbed off on me, because I try to be punctual. I get very upset when I'm late, or when those are late. And, of course, you can never say, as you put it, you never can say, I love you enough. Yes. Again, love is something that uh, goes deep down. It's something that... Uh, you have to have for your fellow man or your family, your friends. Well, and one other thought. of You put it this way. This is great wisdom. You can change tomorrow, but yesterday will always remain the same. That's right. I always said that. We can't crab a split moat, but we can control tomorrow's destiny. So before you do anything or you make a final decision, uh, you better think about it, right? Maybe again and again before you That's do right. it. Exactly it, exactly. The trouble is today, everyone jumps to conclusions. Instead of counting to ten, they always make the decision right there and then, and then they realize they did the wrong thing. You know, I have to admit that one time I did the same thing, I realized it's, it doesn't pay to, to do something and then regret it. So think about it, and hopefully it's the right decision to make. I mean, that's why they have erases, you know, because we all make mistakes. But the idea is to learn from mistakes. Tell us about drugs back then uh, how did you deal with that well my mother was a very I guess old-fashioned and she never liked any any related anything, anything who smoked my brothers who were older than me of course would tell me that you know dope drugs are something you want to stay away from don't even try it to say no and it was all around me in school and it, the whole thing just say no and I think getting Good advice from your family and your friends your, your, was, the, was the answer. Just say no. And you respected your family's uh, value so much that it didn't matter, I guess, what others might be doing. Exactly, exactly. I just felt that, uh, well, I'll be the outcast, fine. But I'm not going to do something I, I know deep down is wrong. And another theme that runs through your family's life, uh, one is never too old to learn. That's right. My mother's example of that because she realized that we all make mistakes and we think that we're doing the right thing and because you learn to believe in one way of doing things, but yet it's not always the right way. I, in, the, in the book, I have down, written down my, my family. Uh, my brothers married outside of our religion and my mother never really accepted them at the beginning. I myself made sure I married a Greek girl, or I got involved with a Greek girl, and uh, unfortunately it came out to be where she was the the one that let me go. She, you know, sent me a dear John while I was in the service. My mother took her in with open arms just from day one before she was Greek. And my mother realized you have to accept people for who they are, not what they are. The title of the book, Growing Up the Greek Way in the Big Apple, and the author is Mike Pappas. Mike, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available uh, in soft cover, hard cover, and ebook at Barnes and Noble or Amazon Online or iUniverse. Mike, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me 
and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Zone 2, and the author is Alan Schweitzer, and Alan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alan. Hello. Good to have you with us. Uh, This is a real compelling uh, twist, uh, sci-fi, just never would have thought of this one. This is going to be a good one, Alan. Uh, You say this, this is a novel which takes place in 2059. It's about the sudden release of information to an unknowing public that there exists a separate but parallel world very similar to our own. There are similarities as well as profound differences, however. The main character, Brad Cole, embarks on a quest to determine what this parallel world is and how it will affect those of us on this world. And we learn that in that parallel world, the Nazis at the end of World War II were victorious. So it's a whole nother world, isn't it? Right. Yes, it is. I just wanted to start, as I said earlier, with some of the past, uh, past experiences that, that led me to write this. Sure, story. tell us. And uh, I've been doing a lot of reading, but I've always loved science fiction, and I thought since I'd be on the air, I just wanted to mention such great writers as H.G. Uh, Wells and the Time Machine, uh, do Android's Dream of the Electric Sheep by Philip Dick, uh, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, Animal Farm by George Orwell, War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, uh, Dune by Frank Herbert, 1984 by Orwell. I've always been interested in, in, in uh, planetary discoveries, space travel, um, aliens, time travel, and, and other themes. Uh, although in the past I've attempted to, to grasp the complexities of cosmology and relate studies in space science, what I learned uh, I would eventually place in fantasy settings in my novels. Now, to this day, I personally don't necessarily believe that parallel, actual parallel worlds exist, although they do make for excellent fiction-type elements. Multiverses are another thing. It's a, it's a very complex, highly mathematical approach uh, dealing with the possibility that reality is composed of millions of, ex- of, of infinitely expanding and imploding universes. Now, there are several writers, most of them are academics, but there are also many books written for lay readers, that's just that sort of thing. Uh, the one I remember the best is, is a writer called uh, Graham, uh, Graham Greene. Now, briefly, if, if it's okay, I'll just give you a brief description or, or definition of a, what a multiverse is. Uh, a multiverse is, the, is a, what is known as a hypothetical set of, of multiple possible universes, including the historical universe we constantly experience that uh, together comprise everything that exists, the entirety of space, time, matter, and energy, as well as the physical laws and con and constants that describe them. This term was coined actually in 1895 by an American philosopher and psychologist, William James. The various universes within the multiverse are sometimes called parallel universes. The, the structure of the multiverse, the nature of each universe within it, and the relationship between the various constituent universes depends on the specific multiverse hypothesis considered. And then it goes on and on, and it goes on into... Sure. Uh, 
quantum universes, parallel dimensions. I'm not going to get in, in, into that. So your parallel world has some scientific uh, basis. Oh, yes, it does. And I, I personally don't believe in, in parallel universes. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. I'm no expert in it. Right. It's just, I read a lot about these things in the past. And, uh, and a couple of my other novels, too, deal to some extent with uh, parallel worlds and cloning. Now, in Zone 2, uh, this novel that I just finished uh, is relatively short, and it deals with several individuals' recognition that the company for whom each had, had worked to maintain a secret project, which existed side-by-side with its regular technocratic in, in, innovations, and starts off with in, in this world, in our world, in Zone 1. The central character uh, is Brad, Brad Cole, along with uh, friends and colleagues, uh, learned eventually of a parallel world which was similar to that but somehow different from our world, Zone 1. Zone 2 had developed a system of transfers from one world to, to, to the other. Uh, the central character's uh, background I, I give a little background. This sure, go ahead. The background in school and home were problematic. So he had some problems when he was younger. And it took time for him to settle down to earn his advanced degrees in science and technology. Uh, Zone 2 is primarily his tale, his doubts about his company, Rydal, why he was not informed about the knowledge about parallel worlds and multiverses. The contact between the leaders of Rydal and eventually, as we read on, those of Zone 2 the increasing menace of forces within the parallel world to take over and eliminate unwanted inhabitants of this world. The reasons are various. It's a, it's a fascist world which allows many of its inhabitants to travel to, to this, to our zone, and to destroy and take over the personalities of those eliminated. So there are many menaces and questions about Brad's background, relationships between him, uh, his father, and his brother, Ron, his falling in love with a woman who, as Brad later learns, is none other than the fiancée of his brother, who is, whose being is also a mystery to Brad. There's a relationship there. Brad lives surrounded by puzzles and the ever-emerging quests to solve so much that is happening in the world as well as in World 2. Menacing problems that are made as well as natural disaster warnings on Zone 2, which threatens to destroy that world. So what the novel emphasizes uh, is the incessant questioning of Brad amidst the many uh, doubts uh, and threatening realities that lurk, eventually come to lurk both planets. Questions such as, who am I? Why is this happening to me? Why am I involved? Brad learns how Pardonet uh, of, the, of the parallel world uh, pardon that is the, is the name of the uh, structure, the, the uh, technical structure which allows for uh, the discovery of parallel worlds, was conceived before Brad's company in this world, Rydell, ever became aware of multiverses. The reader learns that the Nationalist Socialist Forces of Germania in Zone 2 won the big war. Nazium assuaged its passion somewhat and no longer went under the name Nazi. No longer the, the term Nazi no longer existed. And there was peace at first among the many countries under what they called NASRA, uh, N-A-S-R-A, or consortium, right after the war. Uh, as Parnet, in, in, in our world it's called Skynet, some, excuse, I'm sorry, Skylark, in their world it's Parnet. They discovered the existence of parallel universes. Zone 2 became more dictatorial and cruel than Zone 2. Many experiments were carried out, which I won't be detailing here. There are eventually, uh, throughout the novel, abductions and considerable military alertness. Much of the novel involves discourse and discussions of what could happen in the not-too-far future. There are many themes, themes of trust, of romance and love, of self-doubt, of unmitigated fear of friend and foe, and the ultimate nightmare of planetary destruction due to spatial systems like meteors or other particles which crash into our zone. Plans for survival need to be made. Who is to survive? Which peoples? Who will survive among the inhabitants and or their particular industries? So Brad learns more and more about himself, 
uh, about those involved in Zone 2 and the increasing menaces, uh, particularly about his father. Um, the novel also delves deeply delves into the case of Brad's brother, although his estranged existence is an important one in Brad's craving for knowledge and survival. Howard Cole, the father, does manage to get into cast, as does Ron. Both clear up, I'm sorry, both clear up in Brad's mind a central mystery that has plagued his existence since childhood. And uh, this area, as well as Brad's relationship with Brother Rod, or with the beautiful um, Carlene, could probably be expected. Carlene is the woman, and it's, it is a central character also. Um, their respective roles, admittedly, are significant, but are somewhat downplayed at the end of the novel. And it was at this point, I figured I could have done a little more with them, but I, I'd stop it in the event that I think that in the future I'm going to continue uh, and continue with the role of um, whoever uh, in the next two or three uh, centuries will uh, be, be, in, be involved in the world of the future. It'd be, it'd be interesting. So a sequel. Right. A third theme, the last one, it was the one which dominated my first novel, uh, The Caratine Legacy, is about experimentation on the human brain to improve or expand intelligence and thus hasten evolution. This was once a Nazi concern to create a superhuman specimen. Such experiments are involved in Zone 2. So that's basically what I've written now. This is a general... Uh, right. Now, now, Brad Cole, he has an alter ego, a duplicate in Zone 2. Yeah, Brad Cole is, is, is lives in Zone, zone 1. He's Zone 1. He's right, but he has an alter ego in Zone yeah, 2. Alter ego, yes, but there's a mystery there. I don't want to disclose No, that. we won't, but that, that is even right. adds more That's drama right. and intrigue to it all. Cause That's he come, right, he, his father, yes. I guess uh, he's going to come face-to-face with himself. You got it. <laughs> that well, also happens in my second novel, too, but I'm going that. <laughs> yes, it does. So uh, there must be a major villain here. Who's the major villain? Oh, gosh. Well, I can't. I can't. Well, it could be. It could be the brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the brother in Zone Two. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's villains. There's not. There's, a lot of it is, is is the is the relationship between Brad and his cohorts, and and you know how they get together and trying to solve this. There's no actual description of any battles or or of any uh, physical menace. There is a fear among inhabitants of Zone 2, that their world is going to be destroyed by a wandering meteor. And so that's why they're trying. They've been also, they have been experimenting with uh, uh, space travel long before the inhabitants of this world in order to escape, uh, because in 50 years their world will be destroyed. So therefore they need to take over Zone 1. That's, that, that is correct. That All is correct. right. And well. there's also a problem, too, that I mentioned, that uh, the inhabitants, the, the so-called upper crust, what we call the Caucasians, have been slowly but surely trying to do away with the so-called lower-class races, and in so doing, have poisoned the atmosphere. So this also is is a problem that, that's going to destroy their planet. Well, you have <laughs> you have a lot of thoughts about what what is happening to our generations today what's going on in this country and what could change the course of mankind's future and yep. Yep. so there's a, a lot of your thinking about what's going on in our world today that shows up in this book well i don't know I, I, that's it could very could very well be well especially when you talk about as you put it uh, the we generation to the me generation oh yes that was that tom brokaw <clears throat> Some years back, there was, there was a book, uh, which I read years ago, called The Me Generation. And the, it was Tom Brokaw, and it was a series of, of uh, I think, interviews. Uh, the World War II generation was the we generation. They did things together in a single purpose. It made this country great. And the me generation had enjoyed all the what the we generation had done and performed and created in terms of, of a society which is very accepting, with exceptions. And uh, I think the V generation uh, is, although I didn't think of that type of thing when I was writing the novel, but I've been talking about it to, to 
various people that the meat generation is more evident than ever. <laughs> I think in our own society, very true. That may and show. Sure. That may show up in your sequel. <laughs> that's a possibility. Uh, that's yes. a possibility. Yes. 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 yes, yes, you've got that right. Could be possible. Well, Alan, but I'm also, but I'm also in the sequel. I'm going to make it more of a romance too. I'm going to have maybe the woman will be some, perhaps a a, a human, but from another world. Whether it's going to be, a, I don't think it's going to be. It may, it may or may not be a, a parallel, but it's going to be a world in which this woman, this, this individual, will be a higher specimen and will have a, sort of a magic uh, prowess to her in a relationship. But I, at this point, I haven't figured out any details. Well, Zone 2 sounds like a great movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's got yeah, all, my, all yeah, the ingredients. I'm not holding my breath, though. No, yeah, well, you just never know, but it, it would make a great movie. So congratulations, Alan. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, i got a website. Uh, it's on... It's on uh, well, there's several ways you can get it. I'm on, on, on in the computer. Uh, it's not on the bookshelf. I tried to get it on the bookshelves, but I was unable to do so. Just the best, the easiest way, I know it's a little self-serving, is to put my name on there. That's the only thing, but how do you do it? If you get on Google and you put my name within quotes. Right. Alan Schweitzer. S. Allen. S. Dot. Alan Schweitzer within quotes. And it brings up an array of different sources where, where my books can be, can be um, bought. And also, I think there's a website, my, my author website, zone2world.com. Zone2world.com. Very good. Well, we appreciate you being with us, Alan. Thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio. The name of the book is Zone 2, and the author is Alan Schweitzer. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, sir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.